This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This Is Democracy. This week, we're going to discuss uh, a set of events and negotiations that I think many of us have been watching closely, or at least paying some attention to, uh, the United Nations Climate Change Conference. Uh, This is the 26th meeting of this truly remarkable multinational collection of virtually all the countries in the world coming together to talk, maybe not always to act, but to talk about addressing uh, the pressing crisis of climate change in our world. And this last meeting uh, has been characterized by some observers as a particularly important uh, meeting because of the challenges our world is facing, but also because of some of the topics and proposals that were on the table. We're very fortunate today to have with us a colleague, friend, and really fantastic uh, scholar and public intellectual, uh, Andrew Waxman. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. Andrew is an assistant professor of economics and public policy at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of uh, Texas in Austin. Uh, And he does research that really bridges uh, the world of environmental and urban economics, uh, looking at the intersection between the two issues that are often seen as contradictions in our world, the pressures for economic growth and economic management, and the pressures for environmental management. And and Andrew does really some of the most innovative work uh, in this area. So we're really fortunate that we will have his observations and analysis today. Before we turn to our discussion with Andrew, of course, we have our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. What, what is the title of your poem today, Zachary? As If Looking Backwards Through a Telescope. Wow, I like this. I like that title. All right, let's hear it. Okay, it has an epitaph. Okay. I am my father's father, you are your children's guilt, from Delmore Schwartz. As if looking backwards through a telescope, as if believing the whole world could be held in a plastic bag, as if realizing nothing except the softness of our own sands. Here, standing on a hill, maybe it's in Glasgow, or maybe it is already underwater and you are looking up. It should be clear to you that we are not only lying, but soon to be proven liars. It should be clear to you that we are not only selfish, but soon to be selfless. It should be clear to you now that we are not only indecent, but soon to be dealt with. It is not so far away, that day when you wake up to realize you are underwater. It is not so far away, that day when you look up and see a wildfire. It is not so far away, that day when clouded with shadow and stalking hollow streets like a private eye out of a cartoon, you will find a plastic bag or an old shoe, and solve it. You will solve the crime, our whodunit on a global scale, except it's more Columbo than Sherlock Holmes. The ending is already known. Justice isn't swift, but slow and savoring its own wake. A lot of references there, Zachary, from uh, plastic and waste to uh, TV shows, old TV shows, Columbo and Sherlock Holmes. What is your poem about? My poem is uh, really about uh, the, the the contradiction that we're now really just trying to we're we're really just starting to try and solve climate change as a as a world when when the outcome at this point is is almost inevitable or at least uh, it, it can only be it can only get worse it, there's no way that it can be good. That's a pretty dismal <laughs> prognostication, Zachary. 
<laughs> Andrew, um, do you see optimism in this most recent meeting? What what makes this meeting of the COP26 so important for you and for so many who are watching it? Yeah, um, as an economist, I, I get accused of, of representing the dismal science, <laughs> but I think there is there is an opportunity for optimism. Um, there was some commitments made around fossil fuels, um, particularly among some of the major players, particularly the United States and China. But as you've already hinted at, there you know commitments, um, and in some cases, not very clear commitments. And so the question is, are they able to, to follow up on them and follow through on them? And and do you think there's reason to believe that? that people will follow through, that this is more than empty rhetoric? Um, I, you know, I, I'm hopeful that people will follow through. Um, you know, it's this has been a long process. This is, as you pointed out, the 26th meeting of the Conference of Parties. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that as people realize the, as Zachary's poem so rightly kind of made uh, visceral, that the costs and the suffering is not off in the distant future, but it is coming to rear its head sooner and sooner. That people will will realize, and 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 it will become an issue that is uh, more center in politicians and everyday people's um, uh, periphery. Sure, sure, and it, it certainly seems that among young people, this has become a, a much more important issue. I, I guess. As an economist, uh, you more than anyone, right, focus on this problem of the collective action, right? It's it's not so much that people have to recognize it's important. It's actually getting them to take responsibility and not leaving responsibility to others, uh, avoiding the free rider problem. Why is that such a difficult problem to solve with this particular issue with climate change? Yeah, we, usually to, to help illustrate it, we contrast this with the, the Montreal Protocol, which was put into place to deal with chlorofluorocarbons. Um, typically, you know, people are aware this is these are the chemicals that uh, contribute towards the, the ozone hole, um, and you know that was a you know um, done quite effectively, um, you know, starting in nineteen seventies into the nineteen eighties, and it was an international framework that you know there are some enforcement challenges here and there, but largely was able to get governments around the world to coordinate and reduce the emissions to, to, to address that particular problem, which had to do with, you know, this ozone layer that protects, uh, protects us from UV light, uh, light from the sun. Um, climate change is, is much more difficult because, uh, number one, you know, um, the sources of greenhouse gas emissions, which lead to climate change and, and all of its uh, subsequent costs, it comes from everything. It comes from things that we do. It comes from, um, you know, transportation, from providing electricity, um, from agriculture. And it's hard uh, overnight to just stop doing these things. In the case of, of the, you know, chlorofluorocarbons, it was a, f a few large producers around the world uh, where they could invest some money and, and, and sort of the problem would largely, uh, you know, go away or diminish. Um, here we're talking about you know much larger costs um, uh, in order to address climate change. Still, uh, much smaller costs than the accumulated costs that we have and, and expect to see in the future from climate change. But um, you know, like anything that is that feels far off in the distance and requires lots of planning and sacrifice, it's really hard to get people to commit, particularly internationally. Uh, you know, when coordination among governments is is really critical to to do that. And, and Andrew, there's also the issue of the historical timing, right? So even though China emits more of these harmful uh, chemicals into the air than the United States does right now, 
historically, the United States has done more of this, right? And the Chinese would argue, well, it's not fair for us to try to curtail their growth now after we've already gone through those phases. And of course, India and other countries make the same argument. How, how do you as an economist think about that historical argument? As a, as a human being, as a person, I, I, I take the moral responsibility seriously. Um, as an economist, you know, I'm concerned with what are the tools, what are the mechanisms that we can use to address that? And I think it's going to take everybody at the table. That's what, you know, economics uh, would suggest is that we need policies uh, and, and, and even, you know, in some cases, market mechanisms to address this uh, in, in, in wealthy countries like the United States, the European Union, in fastly growing countries like China, India, Brazil, and uh, you know, particularly as we as we look towards the second half of the of the current um, century, uh, in 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 countries that are that are started out uh, lower income but are expected to grow quite rapidly in in sub-Saharan Africa, in parts of uh, uh, Southeast Asia, in in, in South America, um, and so. Um, you know, um, planning for that and, and, and finding ways to address that, I think, are, you know, what we should be focusing our attention on. We hear a lot uh, nowadays about uh, the economic opportunities um, that countries and companies have in trying to uh, come up with new innovations to prevent the release of greenhouse gases and, and other such efforts to reduce the effects of climate change. But it seems to me at this point, at least, that a lot of what we have to think about now is mitigation. Um, is are there the same sort of economic opportunities in in mitigating this crisis? Yeah, so it's funny that, that you know I think the the language of climate change has its own you know um, you know vernacular. So so people um, within the field talk about mitigation in terms of reducing uh, emissions you know from where they are down to some future level, and they think about this in terms of a trajectory. So. Um, you know, carbon dioxide gas, it goes up in the atmosphere and something like 200 years it takes for, you know, the single molecule to then uh, no longer be up there and providing sort of global uh, greenhouse, uh, uh, you know, gas or, cl or climate change type effects. Um, and so when we think about mitigation, we're thinking about, you know, avoiding the accumulated effects of all of those CO2 molecules, um, and, you know, the, a large the proportion of which have been put up by the United States and wealthy countries over the last um, you know, 170 some odd years. Um, uh, there's other things like methane, but we, we can talk about that as needed. Um, the other piece of it, I think, is, is adaptation, which uh, hopefully we can talk about as well, which is um, you know, planning and providing resources so that uh, countries and, and places, even the United States, where people are expected to be disproportionately affected by climate change um, we can protect them. We can plan for extreme weather, sea level rise, et cetera. And I think, um, you know, now we're we're really in a in a reality where we need to do both of those things because, as, as Zachary, you know, made very patently clear earlier, we're going to see uh, you know costs from climate change in our in our own lifetimes. Um, and so, doing both of those things is important. And the last thing you mentioned, which is sort of the role of of private companies or investment, I think we're seeing. Um, to varying degrees, companies increasingly step up, but I think um, there is still an overarching uh, role for national governments and international organizations, um, you know, like the UN and through its its um, Convention on Climate Change, uh, uh, you know, to to get in to, to to be responsible basically for making sure that the um, you know that that mitigation happens and that this is planned for accordingly. So if I understand you right, Andrew, you, you are saying that although there are that there have to be market 
adaptations, pricing in the 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 costs that come with climate change, for example, that they're also it can't be left to the market alone. That th- that this is a case also of market failure, even though the market must be part of the solution. Is is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's actually quite fundamental. So so you know, when when we when we teach students about um, you know uh, in, in environmental externalities, costs that people's behavior impose on the environment and on others. Uh, we pose as a fundamental problem where it's very difficult, just um, almost from a psychological level, for people to fully understand the consequence of their actions, not just on themselves, but on the rest of society. So, you know, thinking about decisions about whether to use uh, an internal combustion engine, a gasoline-powered engine, um, you know, people are not necessarily taking into account the impacts on climate change or, or air pollution. And, you know, very vivid uh, illustration of that is, you know, the challenges of getting people to mask up and vaccinate and, and distance during the, the pandemic, um, you know, when a lot of the costs are borne disproportionately by by other people is, is a real challenge. And, and so uh, a lot of folks thought uh, that this experience of the pandemic would help uh, help help to make people realize that their their actions have a larger consequence beyond themselves. Um, uh, you know, economists and, and you know environmental policymakers for a long time have said, "Well, this is fundamental, and government needs to step in specifically to, to do." Jeremy, what, what you just said, which is to think about policies that will help internalize those external costs. And you know, from an economics perspective, the classic example of this is something like a carbon tax, where you would um, charge uh, emitters of, of carbon dioxide gas some amount, uh, you know, per per ton of carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere. Um, and this is, you know, a real policy that's been discussed uh, in, in the halls of Congress um, uh, even this this year. And, and were the leaders who, who met at COP in, in Glasgow at COP26 at all successful in, in pushing for policies like that, or I guess in some cases trying to limit those policies? Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the big focuses of the COP, there are many different objectives, is just to, to get commitments from countries which is less about specific policies and and more about commitments on on you know levels of emissions like uh, you know to the trajectory for different countries of where they expect their emissions to go to so under the Biden administration we've committed to something like end of the decade having greenhouse gas emissions and 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 by 2050 net zero greenhouse gas emissions but um, you know, getting to those those levels uh, is a different question, right? Those that involves the kind of policies that that we're talking about now, um, and things that are involved in current legislation being discussed and just recently passed in Congress, like incentives for um, you know uh, renewable uh, energy or or electric vehicles. Um, and so, you know, at the at the the conference of parties. Um, uh, there is discussion of policy specifically, but also a lot more discussion on commitments. And I think what was most notable about COP26 was this was, um, you know, perhaps surprisingly to those not involved, the first time that like fossil fuels as a term, and specifically you know, in the in the text of uh, of of what came out, uh, was named as something that is is got to be phased out. That that was this explicit goal, phasing out fossil fuels. Um, and that was supported even by India, for example, who's a big, um, you know, a lot of their economy and energy production depends upon uh, uh, coal-fired power plants. And so um, I think people see that as a kind of symbolic uh, um, a- a- accomplishment. Um, but but you're right to ask, you know, how do we then connect these symbolic accomplishments to to real action? Mm. And and 
Andrew, I've I've long been puzzled, actually, as to why we haven't implemented a carbon tax in the United States, because it seems to me that, you know, we we do have tax consumption taxes on all kinds of other things, right? And and so I don't I don't understand. We seem that we've always had trouble putting taxes on businesses, but we've never had trouble as a society putting taxes on consumption. I mean, we pay a sales tax in pretty much every state in the United States. We pay a tax on uh, various things when we build a house. Why is it that we've had trouble with a carbon tax? It's a uh, it's a great question. It's something that economists, political scientists, policy scholars have been uh, debating for for a couple decades now. Um, you know, the the most the closest we got to was at the very early of the Obama administration, the Waxman Markey Act uh, or bill, which um, the name has no relation to myself. I would just say <laughs> it's just a coincidence that a uh, representative from from um, from California has the same last name. But um, uh, was a was a, a bill put forth which would have um, you know it was not an explicit carbon tax, but it basically would have put forth. Um, you know, a, a series of, of policy measures that would have would have done something like a comprehensive climate policy. And um, under the Obama administration, there was an initiative to try and push forward the clean energy uh, policy, which which was was basically meant to focus on the electricity sector. It was called the Clean Power Plan. Um, and um, you know, I think uh, economists. You know, put forward the, the carbon tax is a good option in part because um, you know it balances the need to address climate change with the concern, on you know one that's expressed a, a lot by conservatives, but also by by moderate Democrats that um, you know it needs to be cost effective, right? We we um, we need to address climate change, but we need to be thoughtful about uh, a way to do it that doesn't impose um, too much of a burden. And, and I think the concern is really um, you know if if we think about what produces carbon dioxide, you know, a lot of it comes from the electricity sector and from the transportation sector. And so this cost thing is not just, you know, a hypothetical that, you know, somebody can go pay for. Um, it's lower income folks who pay a larger proportion of their budgets um, as, uh, as, as transportation costs, as filling up their car with gasoline to go to work or uh, covering their utility bills. Um, in Texas, you know, we just had this, this big, uh, electricity uh, challenge that happened last in February, and, and it's having major repercussions for our bills in the state. And so, this is something that hits people um, in in their pocketbook. And um, you know, an example of you know popular unrest in response to these kinds of policies is something like France's Yellow Vest movement. Right. And so, there's a you know a, a, an attempt to pay attention to um, you know not just the aggregate costs, but but who these costs uh, impact on. And, you know, I think this is, you know, some of the logic going into things like the Green New Deal, which are attempting to be simultaneously a comprehensive kind of uh, climate agenda, as well as a social program. So the idea is that you you can address both at the same time, in part to try and address some of these uh, effects that increasing the cost of energy and transportation might have on people who have tighter budgets. So that's interesting. So you think the resistance to a carbon tax is because it would be too regressive, which I'm sure it would be, but this is in light of our, our whole tax system that is regressive, actually, in the United States, that I would have thought that would have, in the political economy, been actually what might have made it viable in a way that a progressive tax that would have taxed large, powerful political entities more, that that would have been harder. 
Yeah, I mean, well, so you're absolutely right. So, I mean, from a political perspective, it's not necessarily the regressivity that's the only reason something like this hasn't gone forward. So, um, you know, um, my understanding is that, you know, a lot of lobbying and um, has from from the energy sector is, is part of the challenge why, you know, more recent efforts to incorporate climate uh, policy into the infrastructure bill or the Build Back uh, Better Act um, it currently under uh, negotiation in Congress, um, you know, has 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 forestalled this from happening. So there are also sort of larger, uh, particularly energy sector, but private interests at stake. Um, I think you know, uh, an economist would say that a, a, first of all, a, a carbon tax helps to. Um, is a mechanism to help to make sure that that uh, addressing climate change and, and reducing carbon emissions is done cost effectively. It's also um, a tax, so it generates revenue. And, you know, with that pot of revenue, you can do a lot of things, right? You could address the regressivity or you could make investments in, um, you know, uh, uh, renewable energy or new technology that would help to make the transition to a more decarbonized economy uh, uh, smoother, faster, and, and even potentially lower cost. Um, or you could use it to offset taxes elsewhere in the in the uh, the fiscal, you know, in, in the government's budget. Um, if we have, you know, particular members of Congress who don't like certain types of taxes, like uh, you know, uh, uh, corporate corporate taxes or taxes on 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 capital gains, for example, so that could be used as as leverage uh, to try and get a carbon tax through Congress. Um, and also, you know, another, you know, advantage of, um, you know, climate policy more generally is, you know, green jobs and, and green firms and technology are not a hypothetical anymore. They're, they're a, a growing, um, you know, set of uh, employment and investment in the U.S. economy. And so using that as a political tool, um, you know, is also potentially advantageous. On that note, I want to bring us back a little bit to COP26. Um how much value really is there in in these big international meetings when it does seem like so much of that innovation is coming at a local level or even even a a a a market level? Um, how how valuable are they? Is that where we should expect the solutions uh, to come from? You know, I think they are valuable. I think it's important to understand the, the role in particular context, right? So first of all, you know, just to point out the obvious, climate change is a global phenomenon. So um, it's not possible to address it um, adequately for a single country, even, you know, just the United States. Um, it's it's not adequate for, you know, a few states to address it or even a small group of countries, right? It kind of requires everybody to work together. Um, and, you know, part of the reason for that is that we live in a global economy and, and climate policies, they tend to make producing goods more expensive. So if one country or one state sort of unilaterally uh, pursues a climate agenda, it's just going to increase the cost of what that, that country produces. And it's going to move trade to a different country with lower costs and potentially, you know, less um, strong environmental and, and climate policies. And, and so, so you might not expect to have real impacts on emissions. And, you know, this is particularly relevant for this year's talks because, um, you know, the, the U.S. and the EU have historically been the biggest producers of greenhouse gases, as we discussed earlier. Um, uh, and, you know, like you know, 12 percent of the global population comes from you know, the richest countries, but they're responsible for about 50 percent of uh, greenhouse gases over the last 170 years. And so coordinating between wealthy and, and growing or, or lower income countries is, is really important. One, um, you know, way to think about this um, is, 
um, that, you know, it's not just a question of, uh, you know, wealthy countries not pulling their weight in terms of reducing their emissions, which is certainly true. Um, uh, it's, it's also the case that, um, you know, rather than, um, uh, uh, having lower income countries that are growing much faster, um, just industrialize, uh, and, and not control their emissions, there's a, there's a, there's a potential for transfer from wealthy countries of technology, uh, expertise, uh, and, and financial capital to help make, uh, the development of their economies more, uh, environmentally sustainable. And so things like the UN's, uh, clean development mechanism, which provides sort of carbon offsets so that wealthier countries basically get a kind of credit for reducing emissions that come in another country, uh, through technology transfer, whatnot can be a part of that. And there's a lot of challenges with impl- implementing that mechanism. Um, so it's, it's certainly not perfect, but that is one of the, the, the roles of things like the conference of parties. Um, another thing that these, these large meetings create an opportunity, uh, for is, uh, you know, uh, other, uh, uh, groups that are not governments. So, um, non-governmental organizations, activists, journalists, and the broader public to actually participate, to advocate for things that are important and not, maybe not being discussed and to ask tough questions, um, about, what's being done and, and what's not being done and why it's not being done. And we see that more, more now than ever um, with, um, you know, overt and sometimes, you know, sort of somewhat subtle, you know, confrontation between uh, activists like Greta Thunberg and, uh, 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 you know, asking about why more is not being done uh, mm. at the conference. Mm. Yeah, right. No, the, it, it certainly provides a space for activists. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I think what you're saying is, is so important, Andrew, right, that, that these are not either or. Right, we need local, regional, national uh, innovation, and then we need international cooperation, uh, particularly to help to transfer the technologies and transfer the resources and manage them across across space. Right, I think that's a really, really important uh, point. A city like Austin, Texas, can actually have a very uh, forward-looking climate policy, but that's not really going to even solve the problems around Austin <laughs> in, in a global in, in a global environment. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, the other piece of this that our, our colleague, Josh, Josh Busby, you know, has worked on and is continuing to work on is the piece on security because right. climate change is in increasingly going to um, cause migration, conflict, uh, competition over resources and making sure that countries are having these conversations to try and avoid conflict, uh, manage resource scarcity, manage migration is just going to be so much more important as time goes by. Right. So, so Andrew, as someone who watches this closely and, and brings a sharp analytical set of tools to examining these questions, what do you expect going forward in the next few years? What, what are you looking to see, positive and negative? Uh, maybe just let's, let's focus on U.S. policy, not because U.S. policy is most important or most significant, but because it's maybe the thing that's easiest for us to talk about as citizens of the United States. No, I, I think U.S. is this week critical because this week is when the, the, the Build Back Better Act is getting debated in Congress. And the question is, what is going to go into the bill? Right. Um, and we know Senator Joe Manchin is a key linchpin in, in the, the Senate's uh, ability to pass that. And, um, you know, the, the infrastructure bill was supposed to have um, particular credits towards uh, particularly clean energy, and those didn't make it into the final bill because of the negotiation negotiation process. Um, the administration, the, the Biden administration has been advocating keeping a, a number of key climate 
um, aspects, uh, you know, um, incentives, particularly for things like electric vehicles, um, uh, some some pools of money to help um, manage uh, environmental justice or you know, disproportionate impact of pollution and, and climate change costs on uh, low income and, and, and communities of color. Um, and, and uh, you know, a, a number of other initiatives in, in as part of this, this new piece of legislation. So um, for the moment, you know, this, uh, this week, and I think we'll find out tomorrow what the, um, the Congressional Budget Office rules on in terms of its, its uh, fi- financial uh, standing um, and, and expect a vote on Friday. That, that is the critical sort of U.S. piece here. Um, beyond that, it really depends upon the midterm elections. It depends upon the the majority that the Democrats wield in Congress. I, you know, I w- would love to see a bipartisan climate bill um, behind something that, like a, like a carbon tax that you know, in principle, should balance both you know liberal and conservative objectives. But I, I don't know that you know in the United States right now we have a, a climate or uh, you know really momentum for something like that. But 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 it's certainly worth holding out hope. The other piece of this is what's done, you know, we touched on it earlier at a, at a local or a state level, right? So um, states are, you know, pushing an a, agenda, you know, in various places like Washington State and New England. New England has Reggie, which is a, a regional greenhouse gas, uh, a, you know, um, a, a program which is, you know, meant to uh, incentivize uh, renewable, increased renewable penetration, Um uh, you know, we see increasing investments in, in electric vehicles and in, uh, in Texas here, you know, in, 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 in orienting towards solar and wind. So there's a potential to move towards this. Um, last piece in the U.S. that I'll, I'll mention is wor- uh, ba- related to work that uh, our colleague Sheila Olmsted and I are doing along with uh, a colleague in, in, in the engineering school and, and some folks at the University of Wyoming looking into carbon capture and storage. Um, I think before I sort of got into this field, I sort of thought of this technology as being science fiction, but I, I didn't quite realize that it's sort of well-developed, has been done, uh, including at the University of Texas among our, our research teams for, for several decades now, um, which is to, you know, take capture, you know, carbon dioxide gas from large emitters, things like coal or, or natural gas power plants, or even large industrial uh, uh, emission sources like the ethane crackers that are produced precursors to plastics, um, capture those 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 greenhouse gases and then put them underground into wells where they can be stored indefinitely. And you know, I, I initially, without knowing much about the science, said, "Well, how indefinite is indefinitely?" And and actually, you know, the science seems fairly convincing that they can keep them stable underground. Uh, you know, for for you know it, you know the foreseeable future, right? Um, and as long as those are maintained uh, and, and security on the wells is, is maintained, it's not a problem. And so this is something that um, there is already federal legislation. Um, there's a tax credit, the 45Q tax credit, that's meant to incentivize this. Um, there was a, a, a hub that was announced in Houston that's going to be done as, as part of the uh, in, you know, industrial and refinery wow. and, and power plants. And so this is, and this is a sort of somewhat not highlighted, but it is, it is a key component of what's underlying even Biden's approach to, to climate um, uh, policy. And so I think we're going to see the rise of, of reliance on carbon capture. And so, you know, I'm not advocating necessarily for, it. I think the jury is out and, and, and our team here at the University of Texas and, and at University of Wyoming, what we're trying to basically 
uh, have a better understanding of is, is, is how should we think about this? What are the costs and benefits? What are the imp implications for environmental justice for frontline communities who might be near some of these facilities? Um, and, and what's the role of policy? Right. That, that's, that's so fascinating and exciting, uh, Andrew, um, that um, there's, there's both a, a new technological breakthrough and then some really innovative conceptual thinking about how it can be used to help, but also recognizing that there are, in a sense, new requirements for mitigation that will come if this is implemented in the way you've described it. Uh, I think that's really, really exciting. And, and that, I think, brings us to our, our, our final question, the question we always really like to turn to, which is where we can find optimism and even some activism in this uh, scholarly and historical perspective you've, you've, you've given us here. You know, what should ordinary citizens who care about this uh, be doing? So many of our listeners uh, place environmental justice and climate change mitigation at the top of the list of their priorities, um, but yet they often indicate they don't know what to do. And there's a kind of um, pessimistic fatalism. Some of that was in Zachary's poem also that, that, that can wash over us in the world we're in today. What's your advice for our listeners? What can they do to make a difference? Yeah, get involved. Um, you know, write to your local congressperson or senator, tell them you'd like them to vote to, to, to support climate legislation. Um, you know, there are more um, volunteer opportunities, both at the local level and working with national groups like the Sierra Club or the Nat Natural Resources Defense Council, particularly for young people to get involved. Um, you know, whether it's on the policy piece or on the, on the politics piece. Um, I think, you know, uh, we're in a, in some sense, a, a scary point where the, the costs of climate change are very real. Um, and, and the younger generation is aware that, that they're going to be around to see some, some of these major costs, but that, you know, for, for someone like me just means that the stakes are even higher to try and do something and that mitigation and really paying attention to adaptation is super important. I think the other thing that I've tried to focus more on as time goes by is to listen for the voices that aren't being represented at the mm -hmm. table. Um, and, you know, the, you saw this uh, starkly contrasted at, at the COP26 where, um, you know, people pointed out quite rightly that the, the faces at the table were male and, and older and the, 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 the you know, uh, protesters and, and, and representatives of advocacy groups were disproportionately younger and, and, and had a much higher proportion of females. And, and so, you know, um, you know, really trying to pay attention um, to, to, to the voices that are not at the table and, and do something, I think, is, is more important now than ever. Zachary, does that call to arms um, and the um, emphasis upon not just political activism, but also uh, conceptual innovation, thinking through uh, carbon capture and other, other uh, elements of adaptation as well as mitigation. Um, does, that, does that resonate with you and other young people? I think it does. And I, I think what's particularly powerful about our moment is that it's finally becoming almost entirely undeniable, even if you don't pay attention at all to the science, that climate change is, is and will continue to have a huge impact on our lives. And, and, and hopefully that can finally galvanize uh, widespread support for policy change and, and for activism. And did COP26 do that, Zachary, for young people? I think it it, it, it it highlighted the ways in which what we have now is not working. 
mm. at, at the very least. Okay, so at least the status quo doesn't doesn't persuade people yeah. anymore. I guess that's that's progress. Uh, Andrew Zachary, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Andrew Waxman, I, I think you you've offered us today not only an economist point of view, but a a really thoughtful analysis of the intersection between policy, economy, and and politics around these issues, and and understanding those streams. I think offers many opportunities for for action that 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 can push the ball forward. I don't I don't think you offered any um, silver bullet solution, but that's because there isn't, right, Andrew? I mean, it's more that things we can do incrementally to make a difference. I I think that's really your your argument in the end, right? Yeah, it's it's a struggle, but we have to do it. I I couldn't agree more. And in some ways, that's the theme of our podcast. Democracy is a struggle. Democracy is never perfect. Democracy is always uh, about trade-offs. And uh, it's a struggle, but we have to do it. Or another way of putting it, it's it's the worst system, but the best that we've got. So we have to somehow make it work. Uh, and uh, that should be an inspiration for action as much as anything else. Uh, again, Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Zachary, thank you for your wonderful poem as always. And thank you most of all to our listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.